So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome, welcome. It's Wednesday here on Trending, and we're going to talk about everything from Kourtney Kardashian's pregnancy announcement this week at the Blink-182 concert to Kesha, who has said she almost died in January from freezing her eggs. You know what that is, freezing your eggs because you want to have babies later, and your biological clock's ticking. That is one moment where we actually admit Our biological clocks as women are ticking, and lo and behold, many women are rushing to freeze their eggs. Is there anything wrong with that? Is it harmful for our bodies as women? Yes, it's really bad for our bodies, and her story is just one of many that need to be told about the seriousness of third-party reproductive technology. So we'll talk a little bit about that later on during the show, because I think it's important that we're having these conversations, and this is one that is in the spotlight for many people people to see. And so we'll dive into that. Also talking about St. Joseph as the patron of family life and hope. But I want to talk a little bit about prayer right now. It's interesting. There was a study that came out a few years ago from the American Journal of Epidemiology by Ying Chen and Tyler J. Vanderweel. And the study was, I think, one of those moments where we say, yes, as people of faith, yes, faith makes the world of difference in your life. Here's what the study showed. People who pray daily and are church attendees on the weekends, on Sundays, that they have a very interesting association, an association with a decrease in certain behaviors that are harmful for the human person and an increase in being resilient to what is very common in the culture with anything from anxiety to depression. I want to tell you just a little bit about this because I think it's pretty significant. So what we see in this study, and we've talked about it here on Trending before, is that there's a greater likelihood that you will be uh, more balanced in terms of emotional processing and emotional expression, greater volunteering, greater sense of mission, more forgiveness, lower likelihood of drug use, early sexual initiation, STIs, and fewer lifetime sexual partners if you pray. If you are If you develop a prayer life in your adolescent years and take that into your young adult years, that is creating resilience against all these things, SDIs, multiple sexual partners, early sexual exposure, drug use, depression, anxiety. It's also associated when you pray with a greater sense of life satisfaction and self-esteem, fewer depressive symptoms, and a much lower risk of cigarette smoking, among other things. Again, like I mentioned, drug use and other medical conditions. Why is this significant? Because what this says is that if you have a prayer life, you're going to be much happier and much more resilient to medical conditions in our culture today. Bottom line. So if you're a parent or if you're someone educating children, what does that mean? Teach them how to pray. I think a lot of adults struggle with knowing how to pray, having a formula. I actually remember I conducted a focus group some years ago, and I invited a bunch of my closest Catholic friends and 
a bunch of uh, young adults from a Catholic university. And as I was going through the study group or the focus group for this company uh, that was really trying to learn more about the prayer habits and life habits of young adults, what I really gleaned from it, one of the major takeaways for me in learning from the data was that majority of even faithful Catholics who are going to church on Sunday, trying to live the Catholic church's teaching, they don't pray every day. They don't pray every morning. They don't pray every night. They didn't really have a consistent prayer life. And I was surprised because this was a group of people I really thought were going to have kind of a robust prayer life. So what did it say? It said, we struggle with having consistency with prayer and we don't always know how to pray as well. And so what this all really taught me was that we need to learn how to pray. We need to set aside the time, schedule it, create the habit and don't drop it. I get it. There are days where we fail. But this is the most important thing you can do in your life out of an act of justice, love, and honor toward God. And so we need some aids in this. And if you're a parent, there are great resources out there. I want to share with you a little bit about a new resource. It's called called Jesus and Me talking with my greatest friend. And the author of this book, it's a book that you can use with your child, is with me now, Melissa Kirking. Melissa, welcome to Trending. I'm so excited to talk about your book for actually teaching children how to pray. And hey, I think it's probably pretty beneficial for many parents as well who are working through this with their children. Welcome to Trending. Thank you, Timory. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about the book, Jesus and Me, Talking with My Greatest Friend. What's the goal of this book and what's the age range for it? So the target age range is 7 to 12. I think it definitely expands on either side of that uh, because a parent can sit and spend that time, um, the one-on-one time with their children um, at bedtime um, before mass, and they can talk their children through it, pray with their children. I've had adults tell me it's wonderful. Um, And um, I'm sorry, what was the other part of your question? Yeah, what's the so the purpose and the age? You told us the age is seven to twelve, and helping so, to foster that prayer life. So, how is it used? The structure of the book. So, so the purpose, of course, is we want our children um, to see Jesus as their divine friend, and I think um, Pope John Paul II referred to Jesus as our divine friend, God, who was always there, and I think we want our children. The we want this book through this book, I want children to be able to recognize Jesus as their divine friend. They have their friends on earth that they um, hang out with. They know they have those good relationships. So it creates a good connection. So it talks about Jesus being their divine friend. It talks about the four different types of prayer group prayers. um, And then it also um, draws the children in. So it's not rote prayers. It's not memorizing prayers. It's not um, you know, it, it uses imaginative, it uses a lot of reflection within each group. So it gives the children a place to spark a meaningful conversation with Jesus. I love that you mentioned the four types of prayers that it incorporates, which I think is a formula that uh, many people have lost, especially within our Catholic faith, of following a formula for prayer. We tend, as Catholics at times, to be criticized, Melissa, for reciting memorized prayers often and it becoming uh, so common that we just kind of go through the motion. But what we're called to in prayer is to incorporate those four dimensions of praise, contrition, being sorry for our sins, of being thankful, and then making those petitions and intercessions for ourselves and others before God. And this actually does that with young children, which 
starts, I believe, really to take from uh, the moment of conversation and asking for things, but also into an opportunity for the deeper forms of prayer, which are contemplation and meditation. Can you talk a little bit about how it gears children up for those types of prayer that are so deep in forming the interior life of a soul? Yes. Um, it, so it, it does, the words and the, I think, create a safe spot for the child to where they don't have to feel like they have to know exactly what to do or what words they need to use at that moment. So it gives them that, it gives them a jumping place to then be able, and then certain questions might be asked or certain images will be brought to mind to allow the children to draw deeper in. Um, would you like an example, Timarie? Sure. Okay, so there's one, and this is more of an imagery one, an imaginative prayer, but of, you know, we know sponges, right? And this is a, a an age-appropriate um, meditation contemplation for a child where they know that sponges absorb water. and And to imagine then that they are the sponge, but instead of absorbing water, they're absorbing Jesus's love. And then we know if a sponge gets so full, then it drips. And so we want to be so full of Jesus's love that we drip it as we go along past the people. And I think that's an image that then lasts within the child's mind long past the time that they are sitting in their prayerful time. I love that example of an age-appropriate image for that kid to ponder, you know, an idea, a process that helps them to relate themselves to God and the filling of themselves in that union with God. Can you talk to me a little bit about uh, even things such as posture and other images that might be used to help cultivate prayer? So, um, well, within posture, you said posture. I just want to make sure I heard your word. Yes, postures yes, and posture. images. Right. So there are some images within the book um, for the children to reflect on with each one, but there's also the ability for the children to um, to visualize or to draw those images. Um, there is an invitation to adoration as well within the book, and it kind of talks about the postures of genuflecting and pausing as you genuflect, that it's a, a that it's not a hurried process. You get down, your knees stay on the ground. You look at Jesus, and you make the sign of the cross before and say hello before you get up. And so it's helping them to learn to slow down with those postures. I have a two-year-old, and it's really interesting starting to teach her how to pray and the important use of postures, of imagery, you know, little cute moments throughout the day when we'll pray the Angelus if she's awake. And I'll say, okay, we'll pray the Angelus. And now we bow, you know, when we say that, that the word became flesh, right? And we have those moments of, you know, the presence of Christ within the womb of Our Lady. Mm, and beautiful. And it's so cute because if she's praying with me, maybe we're about the the day, maybe we're not right in front of our image of Our Lady. We try to be, but we don't always make it there. She'll bow and she gets it this moment. And I don't know exactly what that fully means to her, but we're cultivating, right, that that idea of reverence, that posture. It's not something that's regularly done, even coming in and out of a pew. The kids need to start to learn because I think often a lot of kids were never explained to or taught at a young age. And so as they get older, they're in their teen years, they don't get it. And that's part 
the reason why they lack that foundation, I think sometimes, Melissa, that prevents them from really owning their faith as they continue to age uh, out of these adolescent years. Right. That's why, like you said, it is so important to um, cultivate this within our children when they are young so that those seeds are planted so deep in them that it just becomes, uh, you know, part of the fiber of their being. Melissa, the book is Jesus and Me Talking with My Greatest Friend. I love it. It's a great resource for you and your home. It's really geared toward age 7 to 12. If you're interested in picking it up, we're posting a link on social media as well as in the episode so episode notes. It's available for, through Ascension Press. The book's, again, Jesus and Me Talking with Your Greatest Friend. If you know someone who has a kid, uh, get this for them. This is a great tool for parents, for parent bonding, for reading and teaching your children how to pray. Again, I cited earlier a study, a not religious study, but a study that pointed to religion from the American Journal of Epidemiology. And it showed how praying daily with a church attendance makes you resilient in life to many medical conditions and helps you be happier, less depressed, and less anxious. So pick up the book for a kid in your life, Jesus and Me, Talking with My greatest friend by Melissa Kirking. Melissa, thank you for joining me today on Trending. I'll be right back to talk about singer Keisha, who said, I almost died in January after freezing my eggs. And also, what's significant about the pregnancy announcement from Kourtney Kardashian? We'll talk about that in a moment, along with why St. Joseph is a pillar of families and why we all need a little more hope. Today, we'd like to thank Stella, who's listening in California, for donating her Oldsmobile. Join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles by visiting relevantradio.com slash car today. Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Singer Kesha said, I almost died in January. How did she almost die? By freezing her eggs. Third-party reproductive technology is on the rise. Intrauterine insemination, IVF, freezing your eggs, harvesting your eggs, whatever you want to call it. There's a real desire, a real desire. I'm going to be really clear. There's a strong desire on the heart of every woman to be a mother. Our culture says to suppress it says to do it on your time, and says that you can do it at any time. It's a lie. Why is that a lie? I think it's rather self-evident by the droves of women who are rushing to freeze their eggs. 36-year-old Kesha said, I almost died in January. She said she developed an uncommon but serious complication from a fertility procedure. Now, she didn't give all the details of what happened, but it had to do with freezing eggs. So many women are going through with this. I, I'm heartbroken to hear what women's bodies are being put through today because this is a topic that is so hot that is so common. I can't even tell you the number of my friends. I can only think of one friend. Let me repeat that again. One friend in my friends and close acquaintance group who did not struggle to conceive children. And it's absolutely heartbreaking to see that people who aren't told about the reality, the blueprint for the body 
are being convinced to do such damaging things to their body. And I want to talk, I'll talk a little bit about real solutions. We have a guest here regularly on Trending who talks about real solutions for fertility crises such as these. But let's start with first Kesha herself. She's 36 years old. So getting into years that are a little more challenging to have children, she clearly wants children. She's had a very messy life. I'm not going to get into everything with her own life, but here's the deal. No matter what age you are, egg harvesting, freezing your eggs is bad for women. It's not just freezing your eggs. It is literally stimulating a woman's body to do what her body doesn't do so that we can artificially preserve eggs. So a woman's body usually only releases one egg each cycle. So on average, each month, if there's a regular cycle occurring. But what happens with egg harvesting is basically the body it suppresses ovulation by using a set of birth control for a period of time and then is given a super abundant dose of synthetic hormones to super ovulate, to lead a woman to produce about 20 on average or more eggs at once. Now, let's just pause for a moment before we continue with the process. So, number one, birth control is a group one carcinogen and leading cancer-causing agent for a woman who's struggling to conceive children. That isn't usually just the fact that you just can't have babies or you're having a hard time conceiving, if that's the case. Now, I don't know if that's Keisha's story. I'm guessing she's probably just freezing them for later. But a lot of women are freezing eggs or going through with egg harvesting, not necessarily freezing, but just harvesting them for IVF and IUI uh, so that they can have kids. But here's the reality of it. Usually women who are having a hard time having children have other medical conditions. And so to dump birth control into their bodies and then super amounts of a chemical bomb, literally nuking your body with hormones, that is damaging and damning for a woman's body, to be quite frank with you. And no woman should be going through that, whether she has any health complications to begin with or not. We talked about the connection between hormonal contraception and cancer last week. We're going to we're going to link that episode on social media as well as in the episode notes because you need to listen to it. But here's the deal. Here are some of the risks. And when I say just some, these are three risks for just a moment I want to focus on when a woman goes through with egg harvesting, freezing her eggs, whether to freeze them for later, to go through with intrauterine insemination or IVF, all of that. Uh, okay, here's the deal. Oh my goodness, it's heartbreaking. Number one, ovarian hyperstimulation. Now they say that this only happens in less than 5% of women, but for some reason, every woman I know who's ever gone through in vitro fertilization or egg harvesting Every woman I've personally known has actually experienced ovarian hyperstimulation. Okay, so ovarian hyperstimulation can literally end your life. I'm going to guess that this is what singer Keisha had because she said, I almost died in January. She said she spent nine days in the hospital and some of the symptoms going into the hospital match a lot of very similar symptoms to ovarian hyperstimulation. 
And she was about ready to collapse. She was dizzy. She was very sick. She almost lost her life. So ovarian hyperstimulation is where you overstimulate the ovaries. You overstimulate the ovaries and it leads to a whole fallout of medical issues. So what happens is the ovaries become essentially swollen and they start to secrete a fluid that develops from the cysts that are around the eggs that are being harvested. Now that fluid secretes into the abdominal cavity of a woman. Now they say again, this is less than a 5% chance of occurring, but for some reason, every woman I've known or who's talked about uh, going through with egg harvesting or IVF has said that they've experienced it. So that's a lie on the part of the third-party reproductive technology industry that is a for-profit, multi-billion dollar industry that is only growing. So I actually have a friend who is a regular guest here on Trending, Dr. Susan Caldwell. She's a NAPR physician who actually helps to treat and heal women and address real underlying health issues impacting infertility and fertility. She doesn't try to damage women's bodies. She's a regular guest here. I'm going to post a link to all of her awesome episodes here on Trending because we talk about everything from birth control detoxes, why birth control is not good for you, uh, solutions to IVF. I'm going to post the link in the episode notes as well as on social media because I think it's really important. But here's what's fascinating about her story. And she shared it before here on Trent. We actually did an episode to where she said, I have children because of thanks to in vitro fertilization, but she wouldn't recommend it to everyone. She had this to anyone. She had a massive conversion after having gone through it, but she herself experienced ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. She was the first time a number of years ago I'd ever heard of this back in 2016. It's very common. And here's the deal. She said she started to have extreme pain in her abdomen and gallbladder. And as the pain continued, she ended up in the hospital for a couple of weeks. She was lightheaded, nauseated. She said it was difficult to even walk. She was so weak and dizzy. And this the ovarian hyperstimulation was a severe case for her, which I'm guessing, again, this is probably what Kesha had, if not among other things. And here's the deal. I remember Dr. Caldwell saying that she remembers feeling a different type of fear. She had been fighting for so long to try and have children with round after round after of in vitro fertilization, which, by the way, is very expensive, usually about at least $20,000 per round. And you usually have to go through at least three rounds or more to actually achieve having a baby or even carrying a baby potentially to term. It doesn't promise a actual living baby. I'll talk about those stats of success in a minute. But she said that she remembers for so long she'd had a fear of not having children. She'd been fighting and damaged her marriage. And so there's one night she remembers laying in the hospital room after experiencing severe ovarian hyperstimulation and because again because of freezing or harvesting her eggs and she said for once I was not concerned about being pregnant I just wanted to be alive she said I never felt so sick and helpless she almost died women are almost dying from harvesting their eggs from donating their eggs from freezing their eggs a lot of women are doing this to pay off student debt to get out of a financial hole a lot of women are doing this out of desperation to have babies one day in the future or to have them now. We need to tell the truth. So that's one risk. Not to mention, I mentioned cancer earlier. Um, the further impact on autoimmune disorders. If you have autoimmune disorders, a lot of autoimmune disorders are connected to hormones. So again, why would we nuke our bodies with synthetic hormones that are cancer-causing agents? And number two, many women are put into early menopause because your body as a woman only produces usually one egg 
per cycle. It's about once a month. So when your body produces, is shut down with birth control and then hyperstimulated with extra hormones to produce about 20 eggs at once. Well, here's the deal. We as women are born with the eggs inside us that we will have for the rest of our lives. So when you hyperstimulate the body to produce 20 eggs, depending on the woman, some, some women have more, some women have less. And you can actually trigger your body to go into an earlier state of menopause at a very young age. So a lot of these women who are in their 20s and 30s going through with freezing their eggs are actually going into early menopause. What does that mean? Well, Menopause isn't easy. As many people know, it's not meant to happen until much later in your life. But what happens when you go through menopause early, among many other things, it renders you infertile. It also renders you unable to carry your own children. So the women who are trying to carry and have babies, either now or later on, are not going to be able to do so. So freezing your eggs is full of a number of false promises, not to mention what I want to talk about now, and that is in vitro fertilization. So usually when you freeze your eggs, you're going to do IVF later. There are a number of things wrong with it. I'll touch briefly on the moral religious side. Uh, and all of this is immoral. All of this touches on our faith. But why does the church condemn things such as egg harvesting and in vitro fertilization? Because IVF always goes along with egg harvesting and Selective reduction is a fundamental part of IVF, the whole process. What does that mean? Selective reduction are code words for abortion. So abortion pretty much always is a part of the process of IVF, and many women don't even know it when they're going through it because they just hear the word selective reduction. And second, it also takes the joy, the gift of co-creating human life with God out of the context of marital intimacy, which means that you often are denying a child a right to not just his or her biological mother, but you often have, as I've discussed here, I actually did an episode a couple weeks ago, What's Wrong with IVF? And I talked about all the different parties that can be involved with surrogacy and IVF and how suddenly you have the commissioning parents, the biological parents, the caring surrogate. This is very damaging for the child. So that's another negative consequence. At the end of the day, the church says that every human life has a right to be brought into this world through the loving act of their mother and father. And that it's meant to occur, that is the creation of new human life, through that mutual self-giving, that sacrificial, loving sexual act that the human person was created for to be co-creators with God. That's a joy to know you were created in such a way. That's a gift. I know that we may be able to create children in a Petri dish outside of the womb, artificially, but that doesn't mean that we should. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. And that's very important that we are seeing that side of this. And so with IVF, let's just talk for just a moment about success rates because we need to tell the truth about IVF. So here, Kesha and a number of other people, Kardashians, everyone's freezing their eggs, not just in Hollywood, but in everyday life. Career women who say, hey, I don't have a man now, but I want a child down the road. Or hey, maybe I just want one now alone on my own. What are the statistics on this? Well, I think that we need to be really, really upfront with this. The statistics are inconsistent when we look at them online. Here, here's kind of some of what we see more commonly, I think, in the stats. And I'm going to tell you why I think we need to debunk this. So the National Library of Medicine, the National Center for Biotechnology Information, this is where I'm pulling this data 
So basically, many women who do IVF are a little later, more advanced in their years. So for women who are between the ages of 40 and 42, the live birth rate for a first cycle of IVF is basically, get this, this is insane. Basically, one out of 10 babies are actually born. That means that most of the babies in the process of IVF, if you're over 40, die in the attempt along the way in the process. Now, remember that each cycle of IVF costs $20,000, roughly, sometimes much more or less, depending on where you go. Now, but here are the statistics. If you do six cycles of IVF, which would be multiply 20,000 times six, what is that, $120,000, um, you are you have a higher rate of achieving success. And that is uh, the statistic shows that about three out of 10 babies are born alive. That's six cycles. That's also, those are also countless babies who are dying in the process here. And I want to be really upfront just for a brief moment, because I know we're talking about women and egg harvesting, but just recognize if there is a case of infertility, if there is a case of IVF where the baby's putting, being put uh, into the womb artificially or where the baby's being put into a different person's womb and not the actual mother, um, what, what are we doing here? We're being negligible with human life and we're putting a baby into an environment that has not been as conducive or was not the intended environment originally through the natural process of human life beginning and pregnancy beginning and continuing. And so the baby has a less than likely chance of survival. That's being negligible with a baby. But for some reason, because it's done by a person of science or in a lab coat or in, in medical scrubs, because it's being done uh, not where we can see the baby kicking and moving because the baby's so early in development, we justify that. That's wrong. We would not take my two-year-old, we would not take my six-month-old, and we would not just put them in a dangerous situation where it's very likely that they have a one in 10 chance of surviving or even a three in 10 chance of surviving. We would never do that. That's wrong. That's child abuse. That is, I'm sorry to say, although not intended murder, it's it's a form of murder, not to mention the fact that abortion via, quote, selective reduction is part of the process of IVF. But let's come back to this whole topic of, oh, and wait, let me come back for a moment because we need to talk about women who are under the age of 42. So here's the deal. The success rate for IVF is extremely low. We even see numbers where the success rate for women over the age of 35 is less than 7%. So one out of 10 babies, like the success rate is very skewed. But here's what's even more skewed with the data from IVF success rates of how many babies are actually born. The way they actually try to manipulate these numbers is they count it essentially as one pregnancy when let's say six, eight, 10, or maybe only three or two babies are implanted. Embryos, whatever you want to call the baby, it's a baby. Embryo is just Latin for an earlier stage of human life, okay? Uh, so let's say there are three or five babies implanted, and let's say only one survives. They use that as a success rate, not con including, let's say, the other five babies that die if six were implanted. So the statistics are very manipulated because this is why they actually usually implant multiple embryos at once because many die along the way or they choose to abort some that they have less than ideal genetic makeups. It's horrific. It's a mess. Women deserve better. 
women who go through IVF suffer immense long-term psychological consequences. It impacts their relationships, their marriages. It puts a focus on having a baby over the joy and gift of marriage. And not that we shouldn't focus on having a baby. And not that, again, as Catholics, we believe, remember, that children are the goal of marriage, that they are the true end of marriage, the creation and education of children. But that still means it matters how you go about having children. And I think it's important that we tell the truth about this, that the success rate of IVF is low and IVF is what follows on the doorstep of freezing your eggs or donating your eggs. And the biological clock at the end of the day is ticking. I hate it when people say this, but it's the truth. While we may be getting married later in life and having children later in life, our bodies are created to have children earlier in life. God created a blueprint for how the human person functions, and we can't defy the reality of the fact that God created our bodies to have babies, to have them naturally within our own bodies, to conceive them within our own bodies. And I'm just tired of women being lied to. I'm tired of the lie that you can have a baby on your terms. It's hurting women psychologically, emotionally, in relationships, and it's damaging and destroying and even robbing women of their motherhood. And it's killing babies along the way. And so when you hear stories like Kesha and Khloe Kardashian and other people who are going through with IVF or freezing their eggs, it's inspiring a lot of young people to do the same, to have babies on their own terms. But I think we need to have these types of conversations to actually tell the truth and celebrate motherhood, turn toward motherhood. And that's why I actually do want to talk in just a moment here about Courtney Kardashian's pregnancy announcement, because I think there's something key, a key takeaway for us to ponder with this big pregnancy announcement. And by the way, she did try IVF, and I think she quit on it. I'll share with you a little bit more in just a moment here on Trending. If you're in the market for health insurance, our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is here to help you and your family find the most cost-effective health plan. Learn more at relevantradio.com slash Forrester. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. No matter how hard I try, I can't seem to escape talking about the Kardashians. Why are we talking about them? You love them. You hate them. We cannot deny the massive influence they've had on our culture. Many people idolizing the way they look, the way they live their lives. They're just interested in every and any product that they use. Well, here's the latest product. The latest thing they've produced is Kourtney Kardashian, lo and behold, is pregnant. You probably saw the super cute pregnancy announcement at the Blink-182 concert. She is married to drummer Travis Barker. And Kourtney Kardashian's 44 years old, so we were talking about freezing your eggs earlier, a little bit about IVF. Interestingly, Kourtney actually did IVF for a number of years to no avail. She wasn't able to have children. She quit IVF over a year ago in February 2022, and she turned to more holistic uh, ways of treating her hope and desire to have a child a little later. 
in life. You know, it's more common that women have children later in life when their bodies have gone through it before, not that you completely rule it out, as Dr. Susan Caldwell, who is a NAPRO specialist, and we'll talk about that solution in a moment to infertility, because I think it's very important that we highlight it. It What Dr. Caldwell always says, and a lot of our fertility specialists, is if you still have a cycle, that means you're still producing eggs and you still have the potential to have a baby. So as long as you're still ovulating there, there's still hope. So that is, I think, the upside for many women who are struggling. But if you are, you want to get in contact with a NAPRO physician, don't turn to IVF. Don't harvest your eggs or donate or freeze your eggs. You need to see a NAPRO physician. So we'll post a link in the episode notes. Go to relevantradio.com forward slash trending or wherever you catch your podcast. And in the episode notes, there will be links for how to find NAPRO physicians who treat fertility and actually address the underlying issues that we are facing as women, not put a Band-Aid, not give us birth control, not nuke our bodies with hormones and hyperstimulate our bodies to go into ovarian hyperstimulation or even early menopause. I, this is just ridiculous that we're even having this conversation. But tell a friend, ladies, we've got to have this conversation. You'll be surprised by the women in your lives who are struggling with infertility and fertility. We need to help them. And having the information for NAPRO physicians in your back pocket is a great way to do that. I'll come back to Courtney Kardashian in a moment. I know this is a side tangent, but let me just tell you the number of people in my life who have been impacted by NAPRO physicians who aren't, you know, maybe in the Catholic bubble of exposure because NAPRO physicians usually are Catholic because it was through Pope St. Paul VI, uh, St. Pope Paul VI, who called for a greater understanding awareness of women's cycles and health, uh, that we came with the Pope Paul VI Institute and therefore this actual whole field of medicine on women's fertility. And so it's usually Catholic doctors. So people, a lot of people who aren't Catholic don't know about NAPRO technology. Let me tell you some people in my life who have children today because of NAPRO technology. I was a very, very young girl, about eight years old, maybe even younger, and I ice skated for a number of years. And my ice skating coach was struggling with fertility. My mom helped introduce her to NAPRO technology and natural family planning. And through NAPRO technology, guess what? She conceived a baby, praise the Lord, in the face of a seemingly infertility crisis. I also know a woman who actually bought my last car from when we were pregnant with our first baby girl who was facing a number of years of infertility. I was able to give her the information for a NAPRA physician. She had just about given up hope and no one was actually looking into what was going on with her body. And at least a NAPRA physicians can say, here's what's happening Here's what we can try and do. And they have a very, very high success rate if there is a potential for having children. And they're going to tell you the truth, if not, and not encourage you to harmful things being done to your body, like egg harvesting, donating, or IVF, because that's bad for our bodies. It's not medicine. I'll be really clear. It's not medicine. So those I think are really important. Those are just two recent examples I wanted to mention. I have multiple friends right now who are also going through with NAPRO treatment. Again, I have children thanks to NAPRO technology because I faced uh, fertility issues as well with Hashimoto's disease and polycystic ovarian syndrome. So that's just a side tangent I want to mention because Kourtney Kardashian at 44 announcing she's pregnant. That's exciting. And Ivia failed her. She's lucky and blessed to have children. She turned to more holistic ways to actually 
actually remove toxins for our body and create a more conducive environment in her womb for a baby rather than fight her body to force pregnancy. And I think that's pretty significant from what we're hearing so far about Courtney's pregnancy announcement. But here's the deal. We need to talk about the Kardashians and their pregnancy announcements, whether it's via IVF, whether it's via surrogacy or through natural means, because the world does follow and love what the Kardashians do. To them, many people, what the Kardashians do are uh, inspiring moments. It might be a glimmer of fame. It might be a glimmer for beauty. These are beautiful women. But here's the deal. At the end of the day, I think a lot of young people are inspired by the Kardashians and want to imitate them. Imitate them, at least right now, not just in what clothes they wear, what makeup they put on, but in the babies they're having. And when you see your icons and your idols, if that is it for you or someone you know, having children, it inspires you to maybe want to have children as well. And so as Catholics, I think we have a real great responsibility to talk about healthy ways of having children and the important fact that babies deserve a mom and a dad. They deserve their mom and dad. They deserve their family intact. They deserve to be welcomed into the world. And adoption is an excellent, excellent gift when that can occur, when someone can't care for their children, when someone may choose adoption. These are great things, but we have to recognize that great gift of the blueprint for the human person and encourage people to have babies in the right way so that our bodies aren't damaged through third-party reproductive technologies and that we can find a greater sense of wholeness and health in our relationships. I think that's really fundamental when we're talking about pregnancy, pregnancy announcements today. So that's my two cents on the Kourtney Kardashian announcement. I pray for a healthy pregnancy for her and for a healthy and wholesome marriage moving forward for her uh, to her baby. Again, she's married to Blink-182 drummer Travis Barker. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. It's Wednesday and in the church, what do we do? On Wednesdays, we turn our focus to St. Joseph. One of my favorite things to do on St. Joseph, I'm consecrated to St. Joseph. If you aren't, I highly recommend consecration to St. Joseph. It will change your life. Letting go of this idea that everything rests on my shoulders, giving your life up, your things, your relationships, your belongings to him is fundamental. And one of the things that I tend to do on Wednesdays is to pray the Litany of St. Joseph, also known as the Litany of Loretto. And this Litany to St. Joseph is so helpful for me as a woman, as a mother, and I know for many men, and at looking at St. Joseph as the patron for family life. That's one of the titles, patron of family life. He is that model. We often turn to Our Lady to think of motherhood, to think of uh, the mother of Christ, but we forget that Saint Joseph was there supporting and loving her, making her motherhood possible as well. He was there raising and caring for the child Jesus. The model of family life is the Holy Family. That's the blueprint for what it means to be a family. That is the icon of what we should aspire to. And St. Joseph, in his humility, in his strength, in his, again, humility, I think is so important that we 
highlight for a moment. All of sacred scripture, there's not a single word spoken by St. Joseph, but he's a man of action, a protector. Uh, If you really ponder his life, there are so many moments where he had to be strong and faithful and bold as a provider, a leader, and a protector, taking his family and seeing his wife giving birth in a place that is not her home, in a stable of all places, having to flee their hometown to go to Egypt for a number of years to create a whole new life in secrecy. I, have you ever thought, I wonder if they changed their names during that time in the event that they might be pursued. Were they pursued? We don't know if they were pursued outside of Egypt. If people were looking specifically for him, for them going into Egypt as they had left that hometown of Galilee. It, these are questions and things to ponder. He had to be a protector. He had to be a provider. He had to start a new life of how he provided for his family and still cared for the physical emotional and mental well-being of Our Lady and Jesus Christ himself. Think about how he is the patron of family life. That's the title that we have for him in the litany of St. Joseph. And I want to encourage you to turn to him. If you're single, ask him. If you're searching for a spouse, ask him for a spouse. I did. I actually had been praying a novena to St. Joseph for a number of things in college. And right when I finished the novena to St. Joseph is when out of the blue, the relationship with my husband, now husband, began. I had no plan for that. That wasn't my intention. I, at the time, was actually discerning religious life and had kind of had my mindset on this whole plan of continuing into higher academia and entering into religious life. I even had my eyes set on a particular religious order. I spent a lot of time with that religious order. And yet God, through the intercession of St. Joseph, I do believe sent me my husband, Gabriel. And I've seen over the years as my own husband's relationship with St. Joseph has just grown leaps and bounds, especially when he consecrated his life especially as a man, his career to St. Joseph and the different directions it's taken him and it's taken our family under that patronage. And to ponder him as patron of family life, I think it takes the pressure off of husbands and fathers as well to see this is my role model. And my role model was also dependent on Jesus Christ and angelic intervention in order to fulfill his role. Because St. Joseph was, what do we see of St. Joseph in sacred scripture? No words, but we do see action. And action at the prompting of the angel. Do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife. We see that in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We also see that intervention of the angel to flee to Egypt so that Jesus and Mary are safe, especially Jesus, from the slaughter of Herod, uh, the divine, the holy innocence. We also see that it was angelic intervention that said, okay, it's time to come home. St. Joseph relied on divine intervention. He relied on angelic intervention, angels sent to him by God. Do we rely on God the way that St. Joseph did? I truly believe that through this humility— This is why we know St. Joseph to be the patron of family life. And I think that's a moment of hope, especially because I see many men today floundering the culture, whether single, married, as husbands and fathers. Uh, There's a lot of fear with what's happening in society. And you sometimes say, well, what do I do? Where do I go? Maybe you're battling your own sense of sin, sorrow, remorse, despair. St. Joseph was a father who 
I imagine, had to be so humbled by the fact that he had Our Lady, who was full of grace, who was literally spotless without sin and so perfect, and he had to find a way to protect, honor, and love her, and then to protect, honor, and love Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. He could only do that with God, and that is a hopeful, hopeful story. He's a real person who walked this earth many years ago. And although we tend to kind of just think about St. Joseph as someone from a story, he's a person from many years ago who experienced the same sorrows and challenges, just the sorrows and challenges of a different culture. He also experienced the same joys, the joy of welcoming a child, the joy of marriage, the joy of of aging, the joys and sorrows of sickness and illness, the fear of being able to provide for your family, the fear of scrutiny, people talking about, hey, how did this person's wife get pregnant? They weren't even living together yet. Uh, There's so much that could be said about St. Joseph's story, but turning to the Holy Family and St. Joseph as a patron of family life, I think is fundamental whether you're married or not. I've seen St. Joseph as that model for what we so deeply desire, and that is to give ourselves sacrificially to others, and that primary vocation done here on earth is through marriage. And while we're talking about St. Joseph and that hopeful message of seeing it doesn't all have to rest on our soldiers, that it can also rest on angelic intervention, that it can rest on God, uh, we also have to, I think, talk about hope for a moment. There have been a lot of difficult topics we've discussed lately on trending, and it's heavy. Even when we're talking with Jim Caviezel earlier in the week, and if you didn't catch that interview, Jim Caviezel's the actor who played Jesus and The Passion of the Christ. He was with me talking about his new film, Sound of Freedom, coming out on July 4th. And I asked him because I watched the film. It's available in theaters July 4th, but I watched it ahead of the release and before the interview. And it's a really hard film to watch. It's about child sex trafficking, the fastest growing industry in the world and the most lucrative. It's over 150 billion annual industry that it's making that much money. And even the United States is one of the top destinations for sex trafficking. It's horrible. And I asked him, like, how do you how do you move forward? How do you encourage people when things are so challenging and at times dark? And we're talking about bringing the light of Christ into the darkness, letting Jesus Christ's light shine, allowing ourselves to be willing to die for the truth. He said, you know, he's willing to die for these children who are being sacrificed through self-sex trafficking. What are we willing to die for? Because I think that the hope that Jim Caviezel and many people have in the face of very trying circumstances is the hope of Christ. And I keep thinking of the words of St. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. What is that hope? St. Peter was crucified upside down, but it took many years for him to get there. He abandoned Jesus Christ in his suffering at the cross. And he had to come back remorseful. So he knows what it's like to separate himself from Christ, to not follow, to not stay right there with Christ. But he also knows what happens if we continue to hold to the hope that's in Christ. Jesus Christ is the hope that is within us. And that is the only way we will be able to combat 
what's happening with hope, joy, truth, and the light of Christ, because it's not us. That's how St. Joseph was able to move through the experience he had in fleeing to Egypt and protecting and preserving the lives of the Blessed Virgin Mary and Jesus Christ. And that is the mission we too have, to have hope in Jesus Christ as we move through whatever challenges we may face in our own lives, personally, or in the culture we currently live in. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Be sure to catch the episode notes for today's show with all the resources, relevantradio.com forward slash trending. You can also subscribe to the podcast. Up next is a family rosary across America with Father Rocky. <laughs> 